Today, I have a great conversation with Liz Willis. She's a fellow SLP and BCBA, and she talks all about play. We talk about embedding communication through functional routines of play, the importance of play, how to incorporate it into your sessions. And she gives some great advice about just taking a step back and observing. I know that I often feel stressed as a therapist to get down all the data points and make sure that I'm working on all the various goals, but that is the goal, getting to know the student, building a rapport with the student, and it's really, really great info. Let's get started. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks for joining us on episode 12 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. My name is Rose Griffin. I'm here to help you learn strategies you can use in your therapy sessions tomorrow to help your students. Today, we have Liz Willis. Liz is a fellow SLP BCBA. Thanks so much for joining us, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm excited to talk with you. I can't even remember, like, how did we even meet? And I just can't even remember. Liz has a really cool course on my site, abaspeech.org, that's ASHA approved. But I don't even know. I think it's just because you were a fellow SLP BCBA. And that's a commonality. You know, there's not many of us. So I'm excited that you're here. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your journey into being an SLP and BCBA? Yeah, sure. So I started out as an SLP first. So went to Penn State and studied communication sciences and disorders. So I got my undergrad and master's there. And then I went out into the field as a speech therapist and ended up working in some autistic support classrooms. And I started my career in Pennsylvania. So I was working in the schools there. And I was lucky enough to have some consultation provided to me by the Pennsylvania Autism Initiative. So I think, you know, if you're if you're listening, some of you may be familiar with that organization, but they helped just teach me some strategies, some ABA strategies. And I felt like a lot of what they were teaching me was kind of things that I was missing in my own practice, in my own kind of learning as a grad student at Penn State and, and just kind of filling in some of the gaps for me so that I could better support my students with autism. And so because of that experience, I wanted to pursue, you know, ABA and learning more and then studied and took the coursework to pursue my BCBA. And I think it's been probably, um, I'm, I'm at the age where I'm losing track of like how many years I've been practicing and like yeah. how many years I've been a BCBA, but I think it's been about like four or five years now. So it was really one of the best decisions that I made for, for my career. I feel a lot more confident in, you know, the services I'm providing. I learned so much and I'm continuing to really, really learn as well. So right now I, I work for an organization in Pennsylvania as primarily like a a speech therapist, but I'm providing consultation to school teams that support students with autism. So utilizing an ABA approach. And then I also, another kind of like, I guess, area or role that I have is supporting therapists and teachers that are providing virtual instruction. So Mm -hmm. I actually started, you know, providing virtual instruction maybe like five years ago. So I I was like a little ahead of the game when this whole pandemic hit and and everything kind of migrated to the virtual world. So I've been supporting um, teachers and therapists in that realm as well. And I have a small private practice um, called Communication and Behavior Solutions that I provide direct service and consultation to primarily like preschool, early 
elementary age kiddos with with autism and then some other speech and language disorders. So I think that kind of sums it up. <laughs> oh my oh my gosh. Is that all you're doing? I, <laughs> I, think, I think that's yeah. why we I think that's why we get along because I feel like a lot of the people that I talk to, you know, some people are like, tell me about what you're doing with your BCBA or, you know, and I can rattle off my our old accountant used to actually say, so how many jobs did you before I started ABA speech, he was like, yeah. how many jobs did you have this year? Because really what it all does is like kind of encompasses my two businesses, ABAspeech.org and Supervision Academy, like everything I was doing then kind of conforms into these two different pods of businesses. That's interesting. Yes, you're doing such great work. I love that. So how long were you a speech therapist before you became interested in becoming a BCBA? That I don't know. So yeah, I mean, when I like fresh out of grad school, I went in, I had actually like, I'm sure there are speech therapists that will be listening that will, you know, relate to this. But I, I had a caseload of like 80 plus kids. And I kid you not, like it, it was like, you know, a situation that obviously needed to be worked out. But, um, you know, I, I, I right out of grad school had a heavy caseload, felt very overwhelmed. And, and again, you know, was working with students with autism and felt like I just kind of had some some missing pieces. And then that's when I right away, pretty much, I think within that first year, had the opportunity to work with those autism consultants. And then I guess maybe within the first like three years, I started to pursue the the coursework. So oh, wow. maybe that's spent great. like, yeah, like four or five years as a speech therapist and then ultimately then got my BCBA. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to talk to people who have recently, like who have been a speech therapist for a very long time and then Mm -hmm. recently have received their, also have their BCBA. I was in the same boat. I was a speech therapist for maybe eight years and then I went ahead and got my BCBA too. So I think the way that I think about language and think about things is really using both my certifications, kind of just blending them together. There's no way to separate it once you get that. Oh my gosh. And a caseload of 80. That's tough. Yeah. That's yeah, that's yeah. That was like crazy as a as was a that your CFY? Oh my god! Yeah, it was my CFY. I was like drowning. It was like I, it ended up getting like you know fed to other therapists because obviously that's not. I mean, I know that there are therapists that have high caseloads, but that was just like astronomical. So yeah. That's not good. Welcome to the profession. <laughs> Here you go. Exactly. Oh Amazing. So you were a general school-based therapist. Did you Mm -hmm. always love working with autistic students or was there one student who kind of stood out to you that you still remember that was maybe a challenge? I'm always kind of intrigued by, you know, how did you get into this idea? Not that all BCBAs just work with students with autism, but, you know, sometimes your career takes a certain path because a student inspired you or were you working with a lot of autistic students at the time? Yeah. So the funny thing is, is that when I was in grad school, I was planning to go the medical route and really wasn't, I almost didn't even get my like teacher certification. And so I had a placement my last semester where I was working in a school and working with students with autism. And I just completely switched gears. Like I was like, okay, I'm going to be a school-based SLP. I want to work with, you know, autistic children and just kind of found my passion that way. I think I don't know that there was a specific student, but just kind of, you know, the the experiences I had within that one classroom, I was just like, I'm hooked. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah. So today what we're going to focus on is play. And I know you just rebranded your, at least Instagram. I talk on Instagram about Instagram probably every episode because I do spend a lot of time on the gram. Um, (laughs) What is your, you rebranded your username, right? What is your username? Yeah. So now it's Let's Talk Play. 
And I'm super excited about the the rebrand. I was, you know, I had had a name that kind of aligned to more of my business name, but it wasn't super clear. Right, but right. The, actually, this year, in, you know, 2021, I really wanted to focus on play. So the first uh, month in January, I actually did a series on Instagram Live with a bunch of different professionals um, and and kind of brought in experts that all have expertise in kind of different areas of play. I called it the play revolution. <laughs> and yeah, I'm going to continue that that series this year. But yeah, I just, you know, in the past several years have really recognized the importance of play and just have been wanting to learn more and, you know, was was kind of looking to rebrand and and decided to make play my focus. So yeah, I'm no, really I love excited. That. It's very specific. I know exactly what you're talking about. And the fact that you do all those different, you know, things about play, I think is really, really great. So I know that you you do tend to work with younger students. So can you just tell yeah. us a little bit about the connection between social skills, play, kind of what you're seeing with the students you work with and um, things like that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Play is, is hugely important, obviously, you know, for all children. But I think I think especially for children with autism, social skills can be challenging. Play can be challenging. And um, I was actually listening to your episode with with Jesse Ginsburg a few episodes ago, and I love how you know she talked about. I guess it was three things that you need to have like as foundations before you start teaching language and teach, you know, really working with kids with autism. I think it was regulation, you know, self-regulation, engagement and motivation. And and I loved kind of just the conversation that you had with her because I think oftentimes as speech therapists and, and behavior analysts and, and people that are working with kids with autism that we rush so much into teaching language and teaching, you know, all of these different skills. And there's a there's a big pressure to kind of teach all these things. And, and sometimes we're skipping steps and we're, the steps we're often skipping are related to social skills and play. And so I just think, you know, it's, it's really important to take a step back before you're teaching that language and, and think about like, well, where do we want these students, these kids to use that language? We want them to use that language you know, to engage with us, right? To engage in social, meaningful social interaction. And for kids, that looks like, you know, play. So that social piece and that play piece, I think are really, really important, obviously very connected. A lot of social interaction comes through play, especially between children at an early age. So that, that foundation, I think, is one that as therapists, both speech therapists and behavior analysts, we really need to, to focus on and, and one that, you know, parents should be aware of too. I think parents sometimes want to jump to like teaching that communication and teaching that language. Absolutely. That's important, but we want to make sure that ultimately that, that communication and that language are happening in the context where it's meaningful for the child and and meaningful for the family. So, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's definitely a piece that I'm trying to, to advocate for and learn more about. Yeah, I think that's great. One of the things we did when I was in Austin, I was an autism facilitator and support specialist. It was the coolest job. I would go and I would do these meetings with our 40 group of speech therapists and I would talk about applied behavior analysis. And then it was such a dynamic district I worked in. We had these teachers that were special education preschool teachers. They had typical peers and they had students with disabilities. And we would do a lot of training about centers time. And we would do staff training with the paraprofessionals 
calls. It was actually like one whole day a month. It was unlike training I've ever seen anywhere else. And I would help with some of this training. And we would train them specifically just like what you're saying. Like, okay, in this center, these are some ways that you could model language. These are some ways that you could work on play. Because at preschool, that is play is is what you're learning. That is kind of your school. And so we did some very direct instruction because... And I thought that was fabulous. And then we had paraprofessionals that would be stationed at like maybe one of the centers. And then they would know because they had been trained specifically on how to facilitate play, on how to work on communication and just encourage it. You know, they were not running trials and taking data per se, but it was a way to encourage that. And I thought, wow, what a forward thinking district to think about are we using the language when it's embedded in those kind of functional routines? You know, I think that's so important. Even now I work with older students and I always kind of pride myself on saying, I really don't see that many kids, maybe one or two in my therapy room. But most of the students I see in the larger school environment, like working Mm -hmm. in a vocational task and, you know, going by teachers and saying hi when they're greeted, those types of things are so important because we really do have to think about the end product. I think what's hard about play, and even for me too, I mean, I like to use the VBMAP assessment, not everybody uses that. And I know that if you're not a BCBA or, or working somewhere that's more ABA focused, you probably um, are not as familiar with it. But there, you know, what are some assessments or what, what type of assessments do you like to do? I mean, obviously, I try to always include an informal observation and things like that because you're going to get such great information. But if somebody's just kind of starting out thinking like, yeah, that all sounds really great. But, you know, how do I assess that or what do I look for? What are some strategies for that assessment type of piece? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I also really like the BB map as a guide, but I think I don't want to say it misses the mark, but it, it, it doesn't go into maybe enough detail about the play and social piece. And that's fine. I mean, you know, it, we, we need to, as therapists and, and behavior analysts, be looking at multiple assessments and not just using, you know, one, one thing. I think prim- I primarily work and consult for really early learners. And so, you know, I may use. I like the early start Denver model kind of as a guide, but oftentimes it's, it's going in and and doing more so like a preference assessment. And also in working with early learners, you know, their play will, might not look like the play of a a typically developing three-year-old or two-year-old. So they may have some very specific interests. And so I might just go in and kind of observe one thing, one kind of thing that I tell therapists and other educators to do is really spend some time, like take a step back and observe what are the child's interests? You know, what is the child gravitating towards? What are the behaviors that you're observing when a child is kind of left to to his or her own devices? Like, how are they seeking reinforcement from their environment and and what types of, you know, toys or activities or behaviors are they engaging in? And after I have that kind of information, then I can think about ways that I can embed myself into that that mm-hmm. activity or that interaction and make it even better. So I think, you know, I, I do, there are some assessments out there that are great, but I think oftentimes you got to go in and kind of like observe with your own two eyes and kind right. of take notes about what what you're seeing, um, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a great piece. And, you know, when I'm working with younger and older students, I always try to, and I think it's just because I did work in clinically, I, I think it's really important to always include that observation piece. So, you know, you said we can't just do one assessment as a standalone mm-hmm. assessment and we are strapped for time. I mean, I am a school-based therapist three days a week. So you want to make sure you have this complete picture of the student and you want to make sure you've observed them in different environments and that mm-hmm. you're able to talk about what does that spontaneous language look like. And that's really such an important piece is that generalization piece too. So I'm glad you touched on that. So yeah. how? what are some tips and strategies for how do we encourage play in early learners who are autistic, have autism? Yeah. So I think kind of what, what I mentioned, like you may not see, you know, what we would consider like functional play with toys and you might see some more specific interests, like I mentioned. And I think before we get to that piece where we're trying to broaden their play repertoire, teach specific play skills, we're really looking at making sure we're establishing social engagement and social interaction with us. It's kind of like, oftentimes I'm like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it, you know, the social piece or is it the play piece? I think they're very much interconnected. But when you're talking about really early learners, I think we need to make sure that we're, we're establishing a good rapport, that we're establishing ourselves as reinforcers and really follow their lead. I think oftentimes we're trying to like dictate what what the interaction should look like and what what their play should look like. And we really need to take a step back and honor how they're accessing play, how they're accessing reinforcement from their environment, follow their lead and, you know, again, do some type of like observation of that. And then think about ways that we can embed ourselves in that interaction and make that interaction better for them, if that makes sense. And then once we have that and once that we're, we're paired with them, we have a rapport and they're interacting with us, then we can start to, to think about how to kind of broaden some of those interactions and some of those play skills because we have that engagement piece. So yeah. the engagement piece is, is really necessary first before you're going to get anywhere with, with expanding skills. Yeah, that's so important. I think that's, you know, one thing I did too when I was working down in Texas. I remember we talked all about the idea of pairing, you know, pairing ourselves, mm-hmm. our materials, the environment with reinforcement. We want to be the giver of of good things. We want people to see us and go, oh, there's the speech therapist. I like that person. They have a lot of fun things. And I don't know if that goes against what we're taught, but I think sometimes as speech therapists, we feel really kind of uncomfortable in situations where we are not asking questions where maybe it seems like it's not a language enriched environment. I was just talking about this, I think in a consultation where, you know, kind of that idea of pairing and having fun. And I liked how you said, you know, you eventually are going to kind of embed yourself and, you know, but you have to have that therapeutic rapport is what I've been calling it, but you have to have that engagement with the student. Otherwise, you know, don't touch their things. Don't touch the cow and say, what is this called? And what does it say? And I don't know. I just feel like we have a tendency to do that because we feel like every moment needs to be language enriched. But really that piece of building that rapport, building that engagement, I always tell people or so, and me being, you know, a speech therapist in BCBA, I am also very concerned with data too. But I think we really need to anecdotally note that and we need to take notes about, you know, just like you said, what does the student like? What is the student doing during play? If the student is left to their own devices, like what do they do? What do they think is fun? Because we need to find those things out first 
first before we we do anything else. And I think that if we miss that piece, then we're just setting ourselves up for such a failure down the road because we're not going to have a learner who's excited. And really with really any student, we want them to feel that way. You know, we want it to keep it fun and functional. So thanks for those those tidbits. That was really, really yeah. good. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that that sentiment. I think sometimes the reason for that is that especially in a school setting where you have the IEP, it's like, you're like, you know, you have, you have to meet those benchmarks. You have to make progress towards those IEP goals. And we're, we're kind of feeling that pressure to, to get started with that, like language programming that's, that's, you know, written in the, written into the IEP. But like you said, if we kind of skip that initial piece where we're, we're focusing on engagement and interaction in the long run, that's going to come back. To us, and we're, we're going to see much more meaningful progress if we focus on that social interaction, that social engagement piece from the get go. Yep, huge. Okay, so that kind of leads into our next question: How do we use a play based approach in speech and behavioral therapy? What are some strategies you have for that? Yeah, I think the the first kind of like thought I have and recommendation is just to consider a play based approach, right? Like I think. A lot of times we're thinking about like drill and practice, right? And, and getting all those reps in and, and that's important. And there's a time and a place for that kind of like tabletop work and, and kind of trial by trial, like, you know, practice. But I think if you think about, take a step back and think about, you know, what, what children are doing in their natural environments, it's playing, right? And if we can write from the start, program and practice skills and teach skills in that more natural environment, that play setting, we're starting right out, right away, programming for generalization, right? Instead of working at the table and then having to kind of make sure that those skills are generalizing to the to a more natural play-based context um, where we want to see them, we're just programming right there from the start. So I think just kind of like opening our minds to starting, you know, with with play and starting to embed practice and teaching into play versus kind of at the tabletop. That's kind of like my first first step. But I think you know, with a little bit of creativity, most skills can be targeted in the context of play. You know, you might not get as many repetitions right off the bat as you would if you're kind of sitting at the table and doing more of a Mm -hmm. drill and practice. But again, ultimately, it's going to pay off because you're going to see that that those skills where you want to see them ultimately. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think the thing too, if you're listening and you're somebody who maybe owns a clinic or is a provider that's training others, I think using really direct instruction to train staff on what that would really look like. You know, if you have your own student, like I have a couple preschool students I'm seeing through ABA speech, you know, as my private practice. And it's been cool to work with them and try new things. And, you know, because I haven't worked with preschoolers in a long time. And I really love that. And now that my own kids are older, so I don't have my own, um, you know, nursery here at the house because that's kind of how it was feeling lately. So I think it's really fun and you can kind of do that when you're in that position where it's just your student. But if you're somebody who's listening and you're going to be asking others to to use play and use more of a play-based approach, I think it's really good to have some direct training on what that might look like. And I think that sometimes when we're used to that kind of regimented, like we work at the table, this is what we do. It's hard for... I know that when I was working in non-public programs that I was having my communication program being supported by one-on-one staff and they would all 
always run the stuff that was the table because it was easier to implement. And it does take a higher level of training, a higher level of skill to implement those things that are a little more abstract. So I, if you're listening to this and you're providing training for your staff, make sure that you provide some direct instruction and modeling on, you know, this is how you could embed play and the students' targets. Um, this is the way that we do it. Because I think people really have trouble with that if it's not something that they're used to doing. It doesn't automatically kind of click for them. It can kind of be hard if it's not something you're used to doing. So those are great tips. My last question that I always ask somebody is, what is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to another professional or parent about working with autistic students? Ooh, that's a great question. I think I have like two answers. If, okay, that's, if that's totally okay. fine. So, yeah. so my, my one answer is to, to really consider focusing on the social piece and the play piece. I think, you know, kind of as we've discussed, like I know it's, it's, tempting to kind of just jump to the the language instruction and jump to teaching the skills that you need to teach, but really focusing on that social piece and that play piece. And I think the other recommendation I have, it, it may not be necessarily specific to working with autistic children, but it's, I think in general, just, just working as an educator or a service provider is you know, recognize when you, when you don't know something and, and kind of just be okay with that. Like there's so much to know as a speech therapist. There's so much to know as a behavior analyst, so many skills that we can target. You know, if someone came to me and said, can you potty train my, my child? I would say, you know what? No, but I will find someone that can help you do that. And I think as I've grown in my career, I'm more comfortable with saying, you know, that's not my area of expertise. That's not something I'm comfortable with, but let me help you find someone who who can can help you in that area. I think that's uh, it's tough when you're a little bit younger or maybe just kind of like starting in your career to feel comfortable saying, you know, that's not an area that I know about. So let me let me seek either some some supervision, some guidance or let me refer you to someone else. So that's I think that's fine. My one of my big recommendations. Those are good. Those are good ones. I same. There are some things that I just say no, but somebody else I can tell you. This is my friend, and that's all they do. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was such great information. It was so fun to sit and talk. Where can yeah. people find you if they want to find out about you and your yes. piece of the internet? Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, I rebranded to at Let's Talk Play. That's kind of like my. That's where I hang out. Like you said, you hang out on Instagram a lot. Like I hang out on my Instagram you know, talking to different professionals, parents, you know, answering some questions. So that's probably the best spot to get me. But my email is liz at communication and behavior solutions.com. Happy to answer any questions there. Yeah, I think I think that's it. Awesome. Perfect. Make sure to check the show notes for resources we discussed. I hope that you enjoyed the show. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to hit subscribe and write a review. Remember to keep things fun and functional and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.